The story went something like this. In the time of Christ, when the first apostles fanned out across the known world to preach their new gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, most of Europe was sunk in the darkness of paganism, bowing down before its false gods of wood and stone. And yet, by God's astonishing providence, out of this dauntingly unpromising soil, a Christian continent had slowly grown up. When you looked back at this from your own time, from the time of the Reformation, you remembered with wonder how the miracles of the apostles and the peaceful witness of the martyrs and the brilliance of the apologists and the invincible virtues of the early Christians and, at last, the decisive conversion of the emperor Constantine had turned pagan Rome into Christian Rome. And you remembered the dying words of the last pagan emperor, Julian the Apostate, in the year 363. Vicisti Galilei, you have triumphed, Galilean. And even when the Roman Empire itself crumbled, the true faith you recalled, endured, and it prospered, spreading beyond Rome's old boundaries. The wild Irish, those ungovernable savages whose country Rome's legions had never dared to invade, were pacified by the sweet milk of the gospel. And in the fifth century, they became Christendom's greatest monks. The Saxons were not so easily converted. Charlemagne had to take Christ to them on the point of a spear. But they too accepted the mild yoke in the end, as did the Vikings even. The conversion of the last of the pagans was a drawn-out business. The Teutonic Knights and others slowly carried the light north and east to the far coasts of the Baltic. But it was done. And so now, in the 16th century, you, as a European Christian, could look back with shame and with pride at your distant past. Shame because you were descended from idolaters and savages who had served demons and lived in filth and ignorance. But pride because your forefathers had accepted the gospel when it was preached to them. That was who you were. But what does that story mean for the people who came to be called Protestants? For the Christians who accepted another new gospel or, as they believed, returned to the truth and purity of the gospel as it had first been preached. Martin Luther and his first followers were, they admitted, not unlike those first apostles. A few preachers of truth in a continent that had once again decayed into pagan idolatry or, as we would call it, Catholicism. As they started to preach, they faced persecution just as the early church had done. And yet they also won supporters in the same way, up to and including new Constantines like Elector Frederick of Saxony or King Gustav Vasa of Sweden or, slightly more dubiously, King Henry VIII of England. But unlike in the early church, these princes didn't or hadn't yet swept all before them. King Henry IV of France abandoned his Protestantism to keep his throne, just as Julian the Apostate had renounced his Christianity. 
but Henry IV didn't follow Julian's script and die accepting that the Catholic cause died with him. Indeed, by the time of his death, the Counter-Reformation was in full spate and the old faith was surging back. So what did these ancient lessons mean? Protestantism was, from its first beginnings, a missionary religion. But its mission was, at least initially, almost single-minded. To defeat the false church of what they called the Romish Antichrist. To win over the poor, deluded people who'd been ensnared in that church's lies. When John Calvin in Geneva began sending out hundreds of missionary pastors in the late 1550s, that's the mission field which almost all of them went to, the neighbouring kingdom of France. Almost all. We'll meet the exceptions in the next lecture. But even in that first generation of Protestants, they were well aware there's a wider religious world out there. There are the people whom European Christians usually called Turks or Saracens or Mohammedans, that is Muslims against whom Christian kingdoms had been fighting for centuries. There was the perennially frustrating and complicating presence of the Jews, whose impertinent insistence on continuing to exist was so vexing to Christians. And there was a whole world of non-Christians out there in the newly discovered Americas and elsewhere, people whom Europeans effortlessly categorized as pagans, that is, the same as the peoples of pre-Christian Europe, the same as they themselves had once been. It's inevitable that a people as missionary-minded as the early Protestants would begin to ask themselves, surely we need to take our gospel not only to those who call themselves Christians, but yet have embraced Rome's religion, but also to those who've never yet embraced Christ at all. Now, in this series of lectures on the hidden history of how Protestantism went global, I'm telling the story of how that thought first began to bear some fruit around the world in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. We did a quick roundup of that effort last time, and now we turn to looking at how that story played out on four different continents. In the next three lectures, we'll look at the Americas, at Africa, and the African diaspora, and at Asia. But today, we're looking at the continent which is too easily overlooked in the global story, that is Europe itself. This is where the global spread of Protestantism had its roots, where it learned the patterns that it would carry across the world. Because even in this period, there were non-Christians aplenty here in Europe, and it was on those populations that would be Protestant missionaries cut their teeth, for better or worse. At which point we come up against a question that might sound almost too basic to ask. Why would Protestants be interested in converting others to their religion at all? In our pluralist age, where we tend to assume that it's best to live and let live and allow everyone to enjoy their own truth, the effort can seem crass, even oppressive, and that's obviously often been the case. But we're never going to get anywhere with this subject unless we have some sense of the motivation here. Protestants, like other Christians before them, set out to win converts for a whole host of reasons. 
simply trying to persuade other people that you are right about something and that they are wrong has a certain appeal, as we know in the age of Twitter. And when you're talking about God, this can very easily become a matter of honour. There was a deep-seated instinct that said that to fail to worship God correctly, to spurn his grace or spread lies about him, was offensive, indeed blasphemous, and that if Christians honoured their God, they couldn't stand by and let others do such things. You might reply that God is perfectly capable of defending his own honour, but that's part of the problem, because it might be your urgent duty to intervene now to stop such blasphemous offences before they bring down a terrible divine judgment, both on the blasphemers themselves and on you for standing idly by and letting it happen. Maybe that doesn't persuade you. But there are more nakedly political reasons. Religious minorities are very vulnerable. There's nothing like adding a few people to your numbers to make yourself feel safer. Converting your enemies is better than defeating them. And in a world where religious and political allegiances tracked each other, your converts are likely to be your allies, and there's no better way of cementing an alliance than fostering religious unity. In North America, from the 1690s to the 1750s, English Protestant missionaries from New York and New England vied with French Jesuits from Quebec for the allegiance of various Native American groups with hard-bitten military men urging that resources be poured into these competing missions. But all of these cultural and political concerns in the end are secondary. The fundamental reason why Protestants, like other Christians before them, wanted to convert others was theological. They taught and they believed that all human beings will, after death, face judgment. Some will have their names written in the book of life. These people will have been chosen from amongst humanity for salvation, for the eternity of blissful union with God, which Christians call heaven. Others, very likely a majority, will not be found in the book of life. They are excluded from heaven, and this state of eternal misery, which Christians call hell, was also, of course, usually depicted as a state of active torment. Now, if you believe in your gut that this daunting pair of alternatives lies ahead for you and for everyone, it is hard to see how that does not become one of the most important facts in your life. And let's be clear that this judgment is not about whether you are a good or a bad person. We are all sinners to a greater or lesser extent, so Christianity insists. If we are saved, on this view... It's not by whatever dubious virtues we might have, but by faith in Christ, who redeems us from the eternal damnation that everybody deserves. So, on this perspective, without faith in Christ, even if it's simply because you've never heard the name, it's pretty much impossible to be saved. Such a person simply doesn't have a seat on the only boat that can rescue souls from drowning in eternal misery. So the fundamental reason why you might want to win converts is the same reason that if you were on a sinking ship, you might want to go and knock on cabin doors rather than simply making for the lifeboats yourself. 
what could be more callous and inhuman than to have the secret of salvation and not to share it with others? This perspective has certain consequences. First of all, the moral urgency of that task, if you look at it dead on, overwhelms anything else. And that means that the ends can justify the means. Non-Christian people, by definition, don't know that they need the salvation that Christians are offering them. But on this view, they are wrong. And so it may be your duty to save them from themselves by any means necessary. A missionary on this view is offering something like a vaccine to a wary and hostile population. What he has can save them if they can only be persuaded or cajoled or bribed or compelled to accept it. On this basis, you may be justified in, for example, arresting or silencing individuals who are actively trying to oppose you or separating children from their parents in order to break the generational cycle, if that's what it takes to be able to save their souls. So that's one problem. Another is that this perspective leaves you with a big question, which is what is this conversion anyway? It's not in fact as simple as getting people into a lifeboat or injecting them with a vaccine. If you're a Roman Catholic, then it's at least relatively straightforward. The sacrament of baptism is itself an efficacious channel of God's grace. So if you can simply persuade people to accept baptism, even if their understanding of what they're doing is limited, then that's a worthwhile beginning. It's a seed of grace planted in their lives. But Protestants teach that we're saved by faith. And they usually assume that that faith had two components. So knowledge, some basic facts about Christian doctrine according to your capacity to understand them, and also trust, a profound reorientation of your life to place Christ at its centre, a transformation which should reach the whole self. So just accepting baptism or learning to recite a creed, that's not faith. And this means that pursuing quick conversions would risk creating a continent full of fake Christians who may think that they've been saved but have in fact merely been dosed on snake oil. That's exactly what Protestants thought had happened in post-Roman Europe. The pagans hadn't truly been converted. Just a thin veneer of Christianity had been layered over their pagan hearts. The trouble is that this kind of deep transformation is difficult Not just because it implies painstaking, patient work with small numbers of people rather than sweeping up whole territories at a go, but also because it's hard to know if you've ever succeeded. If somebody claims to have converted, are they just telling you what you want to hear? Even if they're sincere, are they fooling themselves? How can you be sure of their inner hearts? The moral imperative of heaven and hell would have you win converts as urgently as you can. But true conversion can't be rushed. It's an elusive quarry. In fact, many Protestants doubted their ability to make it happen at all. The transformation of the heart, after all, is God's work. 
So you've got a moral and political imperative to win converts, but you also know that no human effort can achieve it. And those are only the general problems. The actual experiences that Protestants had with the non-Christian peoples they encountered in Europe only made these difficulties more acute. Let's begin with the most fraught case of all. I said that most of ancient Europe had been sunk in pagan darkness. Most, but not all. One people, as all Christians knew, had worshipped the true God and jealously guarded his revelation. And yet, most of these people, the Jews, they regretted had not recognised God's Son when he was born amongst them, as Christians saw it. The continued existence of Jews, a pretty sizable minority scattered through Christian Europe and beyond, was a theological affront to most Christians. Many Christian societies had decided to tolerate the continued presence of Jews in their midst, although this is tolerance in all the graceless, begrudging sense of that word usually accompanied by some systematic legal discrimination and consistent resentment and hostility. The grounds for tolerance were often pragmatic. You know, Jews are often well-networked, well-educated in practical arts like medicine, um, and their neighbours and rulers could derive various benefits from their presence. But there was a theological side to this as well, and that matters for us. This is an argument that goes back to St Paul, who back in the first century wrote about the already troubling problem of why so many of his fellow Jews had not joined the fledgling Christian movement. The argument he made goes like this. God has chosen the Jews to be his people, but has also chosen to harden their hearts so that they will reject the Christian gospel for the time being, at least. And this means that the Gentiles who've become Christians will look at the Jews and take warning and think, if we follow the Jews in becoming spiritually arrogant and obsessed with empty ritual, that was the Christian stereotype of Judaism, if Gentile Christians fall into the same pattern, then they too will receive the same judgment. What's more, the, Jew, the Jews, St. Augustine argued, serve as an independent witness to the authenticity of the Hebrew Bible the texts which Christians call the Old Testament. But on this view, the situation is temporary because at the end of the age, before Christ returns in glory, St. Paul foretells that then the Jews will at last be converted en masse and embrace Christ and take their rightful place as God's chosen people once again. That time will come, he says. Not yet, but maybe soon. So, all through the Middle Ages and the Reformation era, Christians are in two minds about their Jewish neighbours. They should be allowed to continue to exist and to practice Judaism because it's God's will and his punishment for them that they should be left to stew in their own errors. But they should also convert and embrace Christ. Now, maybe that mass conversion won't happen until the end, but some first fruits, some piecemeal conversions here and there, that's possible and it's desirable. And so throughout the medieval period, a lot of policy towards Jews was constructed to pressure them to convert by 
imposing irksome legal restrictions by propaganda, even by threats of expulsion. The result is a trickle of conversions and sometimes when the pressure became acute, as for example in Spain in the later 15th century, more than a trickle. And that sight, those conversions when they happened, quickened Christian pulses. Not just to see those lost souls snatched from the fires of hell, but to sniff the fulfillment of prophecy. If the Jews will convert at the end of the age, then maybe a wave of conversions is a sign of the last days. And then along come the Protestants, who bring a distinct perspective to these age-old issues. Protestants have from the start a complicated relationship with Judaism. On the one hand, they inherit all those old Christian assumptions and prejudices. And in some ways, their core theology doubles down on them because it is, some of it's built around a caricature of Judaism as a religion of works righteousness. But Protestants also put the Bible at the center of their religion, and most of the Bible is a Jewish book. It's not just that Protestant students learn Hebrew and immerse themselves in Jewish scholarship, although their regular adoption of the Tetragrammaton, the Hebrew name of God, as the sort of their key visual representation of God, as you see here, that is not nothing. There's also a rediscovery of some of Christianity's Jewish roots. I mean, it's a small thing, but Protestants start a new pattern of giving their children names drawn from the Hebrew Bible. Medieval Christians were almost never called names like David or Benjamin or Daniel, Sarah or Rachel or Deborah. More substantially, Protestants rediscovered Jewish opposition to the use of images, paintings, statues in worship, a practice which Catholic Europe, of course, embraced exuberantly. But to Protestants and Jews alike, and of course also to Muslims, looked like idolatry. You can see that double-edged view of Judaism most famously in Martin Luther himself. Early in his career, in 1523, he published... This pamphlet, uh, that Jesus Christ was born a Jew. And this book has a, a naivety, which we're going to learn to recognize in other contexts. Luther argues that Jews certainly ought to embrace Christianity, but he blames their failure to do so on the Christians. All those strong-arm tactics only serve to discredit Christianity. And worse, the specific errors of Catholicism, the veneration of saints, other practices which Protestants now reject as superstitious. All of these things, Luther, has, Luther fears, have alienated good, God-fearing Jews. And so he reckons if Christians renounce their superstitions and treat Jews with gentleness instead of with force, well, then there'll be nothing left to stop them converting in droves. It's not a coincidence that Luther, especially at this point of his career, suspects that the end of the world is almost imminent. The time for that mass Jewish conversion is now. And the book's a hit. A dozen editions in several languages, including in Spanish, and it's received fairly warmly by Jewish readers. A rabbi um, gathering information from, from Germany, although he himself was living in Jerusalem, writing soon after the book was published, called Luther uh, this noble man. And he wrote, whereas before there were lands wherein any wayfaring Jew would be put to death, now 
they invite him to their worship, joyously and with a pleasant countenance. You'll notice that the point of all this joyful exaltation is to invite Jews to Christian worship. And it's true that a string of other early Protestants wrote conversionary treatises aimed at Jewish readers, debated with Jews, and made a point of talking about the Jews as God's chosen people. There was only one problem. Jews might have been pleased to be treated more gently, but they did not rush to convert to Protestantism. Jewish opposition to Christianity, it turned out, was more than a matter of a few statues. As Protestants actually engaged with real Jews, not the ones they'd imagined, they made the same discovery that generations of Christians had made before them, which is that Jews actually believe in Judaism, that they had heard all the Christian arguments ad nauseum and they were not about to change their minds and had no particular interest in playing supporting roles in someone else's apocalypse. Luther himself notoriously took this rejection very badly. By 1538, he seems to have come to the view that converting Jews was impossible for the time being. It would only come at the end. His eruption on the subject came in 1543 in this book, of which the best that can be said is that he does not explicitly and openly call for genocide. Converting Jews to Christianity was, he now believed, impossible. He seems even to have abandoned the hope that it would happen at the end of the age. And with that mirage gone, he could see no reason left to tolerate them. The book, it should be said, wasn't nearly as popular as his first one. Some German territories banned it. But it had a long afterlife. Editions kept appearing at moments of heightened anti-Semitic panic over the following centuries. Naturally, it was celebrated at the Nuremberg rallies and fed into the Nazi cult of Luther as a national hero. It is fair to say, though, that on this, as on much else, Luther himself is something of an outlier. If initial naive hopes of a flood of Jewish converts were disappointed, most later Protestants continued to believe that Jewish conversion was possible now and inevitable in the end. And so they generally kept to a somewhat tolerant policy in both senses of that double-edged word. When individuals did convert, considerable fuss was made over them. But the broad pattern that Luther had set is repeated over and over again. Initial naive optimism that a particular preacher or a particular sect has found the secret, the key idea, the key reform that will unlock Jewish obstinacy and bring them over to the truth, maybe drawing down the curtain on the age, only to lapse into muted or embittered disappointment. Oliver Cromwell, England's Puritan military dictator, who has at least a streak of apocalypticism about him, allows Jewish settlement in England in 1656, in large part because he hoped it might trigger mass conversion in the end of days, which, as you may have noticed, it didn't. The early Quakers made a point of publishing books in Hebrew, which praised the Jews as the seed of God to whom the promise belongs. But the underwhelming results had them lapsing back all too quickly into the familiar, familiar diatribes against unbelieving Jews. The Christian encounter with Jews was singular, obviously. But it does set two particular patterns for the wider encounters with the non-Christian world. First, that pattern of naive hope disappointed. At the risk of 
stating the obvious, Protestants believed that their own beliefs were correct. Um, they generally believed that their own beliefs were demonstrably, obviously, and self-evidently correct. I mean, that's what we all tend to think about our own core convictions. Again and again across the world, they approached people in the same way that Luther had approached the Jews in 1523. That is, they thought if they were clear in their explanations, gentle in their manner, and appealing in their morals, then the self-evident truth of their message would sweep everything before it. The truth seemed so clear to them that they genuinely struggled to understand why others couldn't see it. And so when inevitably those hopes were disappointed, they quickly swung to the opposite extreme. They rapidly concluded that these people, whether we're talking about European Jews or any of the many non-Christian peoples whom they met around the world, that these people are stubborn, stiff-necked, resistant to the truth, maybe even in league with the devil. We tried gentle reasonableness. We gave them every opportunity to convert. They've had their chance. We won't cast pearls before swine again. So in this way, that very idealism and gentleness with which they first try to approach conversion curdles into hostility, contempt and indifference. That's one bitter lesson that the Jewish experience taught. The other's more specific, and that is that missionary projects always take place within an apocalyptic frame. That is, within an understanding that God has a plan for the whole of history, and that it's that plan that determines whether a missionary project is going to succeed or fail. Most Protestants were convinced that the Jews would be converted at the end of the age or just before it, but not, yet, not now, or at least only in ones and twos. A mass effort to convert the Jews would therefore be premature, unless you suspect that the end of the age is really imminent, in which case that might suddenly become urgent. And that would also mean that that long history of missionary failure would be irrelevant because God's about to do something new. That kind of suspicion could have real and unexpected consequences, as we'll see in the next lecture. But most of the time, Protestants tended to put Jewish conversion safely into the future as a not-yet problem. And that had bigger consequences than you might think. Because their apocalyptic framework, their understanding of the shape of history, wasn't just about the Jews. Along with mass conversion of the Jews... Protestants assumed that the end of days would involve two other dramatic events. First, the overthrow of Antichrist. Antichrist was usually taken to mean the Pope, but might also mean the Turkish Sultan. Um, and second, as St. Paul put it, the conversion of the fullness of the Gentiles. That is, all of the world's remaining non-Christian peoples. Most Protestants agree these three things were coming. There's not quite such general agreement about the sequence, but there is a reasonable consensus. For example, here's the influential English commentator Thomas Drax writing in 1608. He asks, when is likely to be the time of the Jews' conversion? Before the sacking and burning of Rome or afterwards? Answer, in all probability, it's likely to follow the conversion and the burning and destruction of Rome. And he gives various logical and biblical reasons why he thinks this must be so. And then goes on to say, the conversion of the nation of the Jews shall be the world's restoration 
and shall wonderfully confirm the faith of the Gentiles. So you get the sequence. The overthrow of Catholicism, and maybe also Islam, comes first. Then the Jews will convert. And then and only then will the heathen peoples of the world embrace the truth. So by this logic, if you are a Protestant burning with missionary zeal, longing to spread the saving word to all nations, then your duty is clear. Instead of getting ahead of yourself and trying to bring the new age to a premature birth, you should focus your zeal on what the English radical Roger Williams called God's great business between Christ and Antichrist. That is, the struggle with Rome. The route to all other victories lies through that one. The great lesson that Protestants learned from their failure to convert Europe's Jews was that they should turn their hearts away from such projects altogether. Only the struggle against the Romish Antichrist mattered. And as we'll see, that's a theme which echoes across the planet. There's a similar, although simpler story to be told about the second big category of non-Christians whom Protestants had on their doorstep, namely Muslims. In an era when the Ottoman Empire ruled most of Hungary and all of Europe south and east of there, Islam was, as indeed it's always been, a European religion. Christians recognised Islam as a distinct religion, as something that was neither Jewish nor Christian nor pagan. But their knowledge and understanding of it, at least till the 18th century, is generally very superficial. Most anti-Islamic tracts argued with caricatured versions of the faith. There's no real dialogue going on. In reality, there are plenty of conversions between Christianity and Islam in both directions. But they're largely about social and political power. Um, Christians who fell under Islamic rule were quite likely to convert and vice versa. Protestants celebrated these converts when they got them. The most common sources would be prisoners of war. But sometimes merchants or others who'd settled voluntarily in Protestant countries made the jump. That sort of thing led to persistent, sometimes well-founded suspicion that these were conversions of convenience. And in some cases, of which were made nearly at, um, under duress, some, Protestant, some Muslim consciences were clearly put under unbearable pressure. That seems the best way to read, for example, the case of the Turkish woman and baby, prisoners of war, who were taken to the German city of Wittstock in 1687, um, where she was prevailed on to allow her baby to be baptised. Soon afterwards, she drowned herself and the child in the city's river. The official accounts of these sorts of conversions go out of their way to emphasize that they were genuine, that the converts understood Christian doctrine, embodied Christian virtues better than most of the native-born population. They emphasize it so much that it makes it look as if these accounts had a credibility barrier to overcome. Most readers found it implausible that a Muslim might sincerely and freely convert. Indeed, if there's one lesson that Protestants learned from their encounters with Muslims in Europe, it's one which Catholics had accepted for centuries, which is that converting Muslims to Christianity is very difficult. This doesn't mean that Protestants, any more than Catholics before them, stopped dreaming about overthrowing the Turkish Antichrist and bringing formerly Christian lands back to the faith. But they generally park that hope again in the apocalyptic future. 
And when Protestants encountered Muslims around the world, which of course they do as far afield as Indonesia, they begin from the assumption that conversion is off the menu, not least because they knew that Muslim authorities generally responded aggressively to missionary efforts. Protestants tended to confine themselves to a sly and pious hope that Muslims might somehow perceive the reasonableness and the virtues of Christianity. That leaves us with just one category of non-Christians in Europe, the people whom Christians classed as pagans. There weren't many of these left in this era, but there were a few, chiefly in the far reaches of Scandinavia. And as luck would have it, after the Reformation, most of them fell under Protestant rule. The two Lutheran monarchies of the region, the Danish-Norwegian state and, the, and its Swedish-Finnish rival, were engaged in a race to the north during this period, the Swedish moving inland from the Baltic coast, the Norwegians from the Atlantic side. Control over the Sami people, many of whom migrated seasonally across the emerging frontier, that's a crucial part of this race. Both states begin expanding their network of churches in large part as a way of establishing this kind of control. The Swedes take the lead with this in the late 16th century. Their effort is led by an enterprising Sami-speaking parish priest at Patea, who was also a Swedish border commissioner and a savvy merchant. Um, in other words, his ministry was self-funding. Um, and as a trusted trader with the Sami, he does more than anybody else to ensure smooth relations. Anders Nilsson's his name. The Danish-Norwegian state is slower off the mark, but during the 17th century, successive bishops of Trondheim begin attending to their pastoral provision. The energetic Peter Krog, who was bishop for, for an extraordinarily long period, oversees the building of 48 new churches in his huge diocese, which goes right up to the Arctic Circle. And indeed, he travels to the, to the Arctic Circle himself. The consistent theme of all these efforts is ritual and liturgical conformity, including suppressing the indigenous Sami religion. Krog insists on the importance of teaching the Norwegian language to them. A particular focus for both governments becomes finding and destroying the drums used by Sami shamans and sealing up the sacred holes in Sami tents where the drums were kept. And in their own terms, these campaigns were successful. There's a high-profile witchcraft case in 1692 in which an elderly man is arrested in Varanga for the use of a shaman's drum. And that arises because he's reported by other Sami. He was apparently an incomer from the east and his pagan ways shocked the Christianized people of the coast. But the veneer of conformity doesn't run very deep. There's a scathing early 18th century account of what it calls the delusions and superstitions of the lapse. And this describes a, describes a people who by now are all baptized and who attend worship when itinerant clergy pass through, but whose lived religion is a mixture of Catholicism and shamanism. The author of this text obviously found it deplorable. Um, and during the 18th century, there's a real change of tempo with attempts being made to build networks of Sami language schools and to stop practices like the use of these churches to sell state-sponsored alcohol. But as viewed from Stockholm or Copenhagen, this kind of Christianization is satisfactory. 
The lesson is that as long as church structures and firm governance are put in place and held there for long enough, then a pagan population can be brought into a passable semblance of Christian civility at low risk and at low cost. And if it's only in Scandinavia that you'd find actual pagans, there are other Protestant states with barbarians within their borders. The Welsh, the Scottish Highlanders, the Gaelic-speaking Irish, all of these people have been Christians for a thousand years or more. But the elites in London and Edinburgh and Dublin saw them as being as savage as any Native American. British Protestants learned most of what they thought they knew about how to convert heathens and barbarians from their experience with the Celtic peoples. Wales points the way. In the wake of the so-called Acts of Union, uh, which merge Wales into the English state, William Barlow, who's an enthusiastic Protestant and a firmly English clergyman, parachuted in to be Bishop of St. David's sets himself to remedy what he calls the barbarous ignorance and inveterate accustomed superstition of his people. And his solution is education. He hopes that once his new schools are up and running, the Welsh rudeness would soon be framed to English civility, and that the Welsh rudeness decreasing, Christian civility may be introduced. Plainly, English and Christian are almost synonyms doesn't quite work out that way. The Welsh language stubbornly refuses to die out and is treated as evidence of the barbarism of the people for centuries. But still, from London, Wales looks like a success of sorts. The population conformed to the Protestant settlement, obediently, maybe not enthusiastically. The gentry are brought into the governing class. Looks as if Civility, Englishness, and Protestantism can be forcibly imposed on a barbaric people, and if they're held in place long enough, the plaster will set and the job will be done. Scotland shows that there's a tantalising alternative. When the Protestant Reformation comes to Scotland in 1559-60, the Highlanders were participants in the drama, not bystanders or victims. Archibald Campbell, who's Earl of Argyll and also head of Clan Campbell, is woven into both lowland and highland power structures, and he is at the heart of the Protestant cause from the beginning and brings large parts of the highlands into the new religious world with him, starting to, to, to produce Protestant books printed in Gaelic. The Reformation in the highlands is a homegrown affair, not really a missionary project at all, and that gives it an energy and cultural suppleness that wouldn't appear in Welsh Protestantism for 200 years. So there's two models. And it's no surprise that Protestant states choose the low-risk, low-reward option offered by the Welsh Sami example rather than this dangerous path. And that option, the low-risk, low-reward one, is tested to destruction and beyond in Ireland. It's often been pointed out that Ireland is an exceptional case, the only really substantial territory of this era in Europe whose people don't conform to the religion of their rulers. Um, there's been a lively debate about why that is, and I don't want to shortcut it, but a large part of the answer must be the people don't convert to Protestantism because Protestants make very little effort to convert them. There were occasional and tantalising exceptions, like William Beadle, who's an Englishman, made an Irish bishop in the late 1620s, who takes it on himself to learn Irish, to sponsor preaching in Irish, and to stand up against the predatory financial exploitation practiced by many of his own clergy. 
He apparently won respect from the Gaelic Irish population and not a few converts. But he also met a wall of opposition from the Anglo-Irish Protestant establishment who regarded his attempt to legitimate the Irish language as bordering on treason and who mocked his accommodation to the Gaelic Irish as degeneracy. And the project died with him. Well, one of his legacies was an unfinished translation of the Bible into Irish, which was picked up decades later by another idealist, the Irish Protestant scientist and missionary enthusiast Robert Boyle. It's his advocacy, and not least over 700 pounds of his own money, that gets the Irish Bible published at last in the 1680s. But Boyle and his allies also met ferocious opposition and indeed threats. One warned him that if he succeeded in making the Gaelic-Irish Protestants, then the Anglo-Irish would abandon the faith themselves. One of Boyle's allies told him, our own apparent but very false brethren aren't ashamed to profess a dislike of our endeavours to convert the natives of this country upon maxims like those of the American planters in hindering the conversion of their slaves. That's an important comparison and a hint of what lies ahead of us in this story. But for now, it shows that the Irish story had reached a point where civilising the wild Irish seemed impossible and therefore converting them seemed undesirable. In which case, what's the alternative? The Protestant establishment saw these people as heathen, as a spiritual wilderness, waste, desolate. How was Ireland to be turned into a flourishing garden? if its native strains turned out to be thorns and thistles, impossible to cultivate. Well, the principal policy which English governments turned to was called, revealingly enough, plantation. If working with the native strains of Christianity was too difficult or too dangerous, better to replace them with imported cultivars which were known to be safe and fruitful. The result, as one Irish observer put it with bitter humour in the 1690s, was that our zealous reformers went into Ireland to propagate their gospel where they took more pains to make the land turn Protestant than the people. Their great zeal for converting those popish acres made them stick at nothing that might forward so holy a design. Ulster, Ireland's northern quadrant, which had in the 16th century been the heartland of Gaeldom and of Catholic resistance, was recolored as a Protestant province without having to convert a single recalcitrant Catholic. The process wasn't pretty, but it was possible to tell yourself that it worked. So, as Protestants began to spread across the world and encounter more and more varied non-Christian peoples from the later 16th century onwards, these are the lessons they took with them. Yes, It was both spiritually and politically desirable for the heathen to embrace the gospel. But Protestants' European experience told them to lower their expectations. Jews and Muslims were most unlikely to convert at all. So there was little point in treating them gently in the hope of enticing them to the true faith. It's been tried before. As to pagans, that capacious category that... Europeans apply by default to almost every alien religion or culture that they meet. Hopes for them are distinctly muted as well. If they're going to be Christianized, then the Welsh Sami model of top-down enforcement of conformity is the most obvious and the least dangerous model. And over generations, 
it might work as long as firm political control is established first. And if it seems to be proceeding painfully slowly, if the sudden hopes of a harvest of the heathen souls that periodically do flare up routinely are disappointed, well, what else did you expect? Perhaps a few souls could be snatched from the flames, but it's not yet time for anything more. The popish antichrist has to be overthrown. The long-sundered Jews have to come home. Until then, it might not make sense even to treat these people as heathen, that is, as wild, uncultivated people, deserving of pity, waiting to receive the plough, ready to be watered and sown with good seed. Instead, for now at least, they might be savages, reprobates, a crooked generation, a desert of thorns, fit only for burning, so that true Christians might spring up in their place. So when in the next three lectures we follow stories of Protestants across the world actually negotiating these cross-cultural encounters, remember the baggage that they were carrying, the weight of the assumptions that they were struggling against. Because as we'll see, the remarkable truth is that their hopes and their ideals were not entirely crushed, that many of them continued to work at these apparently fruitless tasks and even that slowly amidst their many failures and cruelties, some of them began to learn that there might be other ways of doing it. Thank you all. I'm going to start with one of our online questions. Um, this is someone who um, wants to ask a question about converts from Judaism. Um, they say that you say that a fuss was made of converts from Judaism do you mean fuss as continued discrimination, social ostracism, um, and discrimination to the point of persecution? And this person suggests that um, Spanish converts were forbidden um, to take office and prevented from fully assimilating. Thank you. That's a really useful point to, to, to clarify. Um, the, that Spanish experience of the... the you know, large numbers of, of, of Jews in Spain, Portugal, and some in some other countries who are converted under you know, either you know, actual forcible conversions or under considerable degrees of duress in the 14th, 15th centuries chiefly, leads to generations of people who are identified in the Spanish context as conversos, um, as descendants of converts whose status as Christians is never entirely settled. They're known in Spain as new Christians and there's generations of discrimination against them and indeed um, blood purity statutes brought in to, to, to mark that discrimination. Protestants explicitly denounce that sort of thing and are very, very keen. This becomes part of a smaller part of their their legend of the cruelties of the Spanish that they want no they want no part of that sort of thing and are very keen to demonstrate that they're that they're different. So when there are convert, Jewish converts to Protestantism, the most famous of them would be Emmanuel Tremelius, who's an Italian Jew who converts briefly to Catholicism and then to then to Protestantism in the in the fifteen forties, and becomes renowned as a scholar of as 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 a Hebrew scholar amongst Protestants, produces the the most widely used Protestant 
Latin translation of the Bible. Calvin tries to appoint him as, um, as to, to, to his his academy in Geneva, isn't able to make it work. You know, he he is 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 properly fated, is made a fuss of in that sense, of of you know, is, of, of, of of being much treasured and celebrated. Um, that's again a little exceptional. Other cases. They're, when I say that they're made a fuss of in the sense that they are, are held up as exemplars, what they're not allowed to do is simply to disappear into the Christian population and be normal. Um, you know, that, that, that sense of, oh, look, it's a converted Jew. You know, that, that is, isn't that a special thing, is the, is the sense that you have around them. And there are sufficiently few of them that that kind of response becomes possible. Just wondered if you could say something about um, France and how uh, the conversion of Catholics in, in France, it's, am I even thinking it was quite a regional thing, or it still is quite a regional thing? Uh, yes, indeed. The, there's, there's a there's wave of... So you're talking about conversion of Catholics in France to Protestantism. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this happens quite quickly in the... You know, most of it is happening in the late... 1550s and very early 1560s, um, French Protestantism goes from being a pretty small movement to being you know, upwards of 10% of the population. Um, you know, are, are actual members of a Protestant church by, by the time of the First War of Religion breaks out in, in 1562. Um, and that is, well, it, it certainly happens at the same time as a very substantial missionary effort, um, which is being led from Calvin's Geneva, you know, just over the border. Uh, and it's, you know, one of the things that effort certainly does is organise these um, disparate Protestant groups into a network of, of cell churches who actually even managed to hold a national synod in Paris, you know, it, at the height of the persecution against them. Um, they're scattered, although, as you say, there's a regional pattern, the south, um, you know, becomes an area of, of, of particular strength, Languedoc-Provence, that, um, the Midi. Um, it's very often tied to noble uh, sponsorship. So uh, uh, you know, many of the most prominent converts are from the high nobility. Nearly half of the high nobility become Protestants at, at, at the height of it. And many of them bring their estates with them. So that's, that's what makes that sort of large social, social rollout possible. Um, and there's, of course, a degree of tension between what Calvin and his ministers think ought to be done and the noble leadership who regard it as their birthright to take charge of this movement. Um, so, I, I mean, this cuts across the issues of how you deal with the non-Christian population in, a, in, in an interesting set of ways. Um, there are even some Jewish observers who look at this wave of converts in a region of France which had seen quite a lot of forced conversions and say, ah, all these people who are becoming Protestants are actually former Jews um, who are now taking this opportunity to throw off Catholicism. But that, that's probably not true. But it's interesting that that, that idea is even, is, is, is even conceivable. Uh, thank you so much. Um, you tell a story of what must be sort of a total conviction of, of the Protestants, of the truth of, of their belief, because for as I understand it, for Jews, um, certain theological issues, such as the idea of son of God, 
um, is anathema because it takes on the oneness and unity of God. And if God is omnipotent and omnipresent and has all these other attributes, um, then God cannot be a father. This language nowadays would be a kind of theological dialogue about metaphorical um, and symbolic language, but presumably none of that uh, was was the case. It, it is one of the the striking features of the way that that, that Protestants talk about about Judaism, um, and indeed you find this in the there's there's something similar in in the way that they talk about Islam that the imaginative leap of really understanding what a different worldview looks like, the different priorities it has, the different categories that it uses, is one that they really struggle to make. You, by the end of my period in the 18th century, you do find some people making real attempts at it. But when I say that there's a certain naivety to, to many of these approaches, it does seem to be based on the assumption from many of these Protestants, that these second order issues, things like the use of statues in, in worship, I mean, things that Jews clearly do find offensive and repugnant about Christianity, no, no doubt about that. Um, and when Protestants start turning on these things, a lot of Jewish observers are, are, are clearly delighted by it. Um, but Protestants appear to think that that's going to be enough that it, will, it really will be possible if they can remove these, as I say, second-order issues, that the, the more fundamental, the more profound objections that the Jews have to, to Christian doctrine, as you say, are going to be of a kind that they'd, they'd simply be able to, 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 to sweep away. And it's when they discover that, Protestant object, that Jewish objections to Catholicism are different from their own, um, that, they, that Jews really do approach this from their own perspective with their own priorities, that's, that's a discovery that they find quite, quite difficult to handle again and again. With modern uh, Protestant churches like uh, Jesus for the Jews, and uh, what they often do is that they encourage Jews to recognize their Jewish um, ancestry. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, when they convert to Protestant Christianity. Uh, in the early years, did they do that or would they encourage uh, ex-Jews to change their surnames and forget about their ancestry? Somewhere between the two. Um, there's, there's not the kind of pattern that you have seen in some um, Christian eras of, of wanting to efface people's Jewish roots. They, they do take the idea of the Jews as God's chosen people seriously. What they do not do, the path they don't go anywhere near, um, is the route that some modern Messianic Jewish, so to use that slightly problematic term, um, groups have, have done of creating a form of Christianity which is strongly informed by Jewish practice um, and, and it, going back to, to the, the patterns of Jewish Christians of the of the first couple of centuries um, they're very clear that Jewish converts to to Christianity need to renounce um, circumcision or and Jewish dietary laws and and, 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 and so forth um, they do not need to renounce and in fact they, they should embrace and celebrate 
um, their membership of the Jewish people, their, their descent from, their, their literal descent from Abraham. Um, but in terms of any ritual or markers of practice of, 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 of their lives as Christians, which might separate them from Gentile Christians, that, that's somewhere they absolutely don't want to go. Um, partly because they've got their own theological problems with some Protestant radicals who keep trying to introduce elements of Jewish practice into, in, into Christian practice and Protestant establishments don't like that. Um, and partly, of course, just because we're, we're still operating in a world where anti-Semitism is the sea that people are swimming in and the, 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 you know, the deep prejudices there make that sort of embrace of aspects of Judaism simply unacceptable, unthinkable, really, for Christians. Professor Rari, thank you very, very much.